0: I do want to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, which is our continuing study there. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back and and look and see uh, its meaning. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter 10. You can follow along on the screen. If uh, you uh, need a Bible, you can find the words there. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Dead flies make the... ...perfumers' ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when fools walk on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place... ...for calmness will lay great offense uh, to rest." There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in the many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of the talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and the princes feast at the proper time. For strength and not for drunkenness. Though sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house breaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. And money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice. Or some winged creature tell the matter. May God help us to understand this His most precious word. This whole text begins all uh, with... Uh, a pretty, a uh, smelly, a uh, situation. A uh, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You remember the old prank in weddings is why everybody's in the uh, sanctuary for the wedding. Uh, some have gone off, uh, bought a can of sardines or two and uh, uh, lay them, uh, bare uh, sardines, on the uh, manifold of the engine so that when the groom and the bride get in the car, crank it up, you can't tell yet because it needs a little heat. And so as the manifold heats up, you begin to cook the sardines and the whole car uh, smells like sardines. Not just for that day, for many days after. The point that the writer of Ecclesiastes is making is that folly stinks. And it makes even good things stink too. Chapter 10 is a warning to us, warning to everyone to stay away from the smelly way. In other words, Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on Ecclesiastes said, It is easier to make a stink than it is to create sweetness. And so the question that, it, that uh, we ought to answer is wh- what is the smelly way? What is this folly that he's talking about? And so we, in order for us to get our minds around that, he contrasts. He contrasts uh, two different ways to live in this world. Uh, and one of the ways is folly and the other way is wisdom. The problem is that we often think that folly is about a choice between good and evil, and it's not. Not usually. It's usually between what is wise to do and what is foolish uh, to do. Folly refers to someone who does not fear God. And we said that the Bible defines fearing God as one who lives his life before the face of God. Someone who recognizes that there's someone above the sun. But if someone who lives their whole lives is there's nothing but it, what we have beneath the sun, this is a closed system, he calls that folly or a fool's life. The old ancients used to say that we are called to live quorum deo, the, before the face of God. Or they use the beatific vision of revelation that we live before the presence of God. That's where we're, we're going And so we live that way now because that's our ultimate destination. That's our ultimate life. Which is why fools who don't live that way are walking in a direction. Many times they don't know they're walking in this direction, but fools walk in a direction that is away from God. One of our misnomers is that we tend to think that foolishness or folly is uh, the same thing as wickedness. Folly can lead to wickedness, but it is not wickedness in of itself. The point that the writer is saying is that the fool is directionally impaired. That is, he's walking in a direction he doesn't even know is the wrong direction. Verse 2, wise man's heart inclines him to what? To the right, but the fool's heart to the left. So let me ask you, which direction is your life going Toward God, toward discipleship, toward God's people or away from those things. Away from God, away from discipleship, away from God's people. Everyone travels in a direction. And where your heart leans is the direction you will go. Wisdom and folly are indicators of the heart. (coughs) Think of them as a compass where true north is, where your true north is, is the direction in which you will go. It determines our behavior. The danger is not that a fool is walking in the wrong direction. That's a symptom. The danger is that the fool doesn't even know he is. But we do. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. Dan Allender puts it this way in his book. The fool will follow a path that seems to be right even when the blacktop gives way to gravel and gravel to dirt and dirt to rocks and debris. Almost nothing will stop the fool from plunging head on into peril. The preacher's point, the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us we are to stay off the smelly road because it's a fool's errand. And so in order to to get our understanding of chapter 10, it's quite simple. He contrasts two things. He contrasts the life of the fool and the life of someone who is wise. And he says uh, some things about fools and he says some things about the wise. And so first, let's look at what he says about fools. Folly makes everything else stink. You know that's true because a fool in a house disturbs the home. You have one person who's acting foolishly and everybody pays. There's no way to isolate a fool in a house. A fool at work makes the workplace a miserable place. You have one worker who's acting foolishly and it could cost the whole company. A fool in government produces evil in society. The wrong leader leads the whole nation. A fool in church steals its peace and robs its unity. A fool lets everyone know that he's a fool. And the only one in the room that doesn't know he's a fool is himself. You ever heard that old proverb... It is better to remain silent and let people think you are a fool than for you to speak and confirm their, their suspicion. A fool can't help us. They always are revealing their heart. But how are we to respond? Maybe, maybe it's someone in your home or maybe it's at work or, or maybe it's in the church or maybe it's in government. How are you supposed to respond Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. What he's given us is this this upside-down view of dealing with fools. Our natural inclination of a fool in government is to avoid them, run Or or maybe in the home, just let them do what they're going to do. Let me wall it off, kind of like we're on the Titanic and we can close the compartments and somehow keep the ship afloat. No, he says, the upside down thing is you need to remain calm and quiet. Because it is a calm and quiet life that sets aside the offenses. How do you do that? In the face of what somebody is turning your home upside down, your your workplace upside down, your country upside down, even the church upside down, how do you act calm and quiet? He gives us two pieces of advice, actually. He says, first of all, in verses 8 and 9, folly eats itself. He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him and breaks through a wall. He who quarrels uh, quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. You hear what he say, and he says one of the things is you don't have to worry, because justice is coming to everyone. You don't have to be the judge, you don't have to be the jury, and you don't have to be the executioner. That's God's job. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So one of the coming. Uh, uh, motivations to be calm is the fact that in the end all fools will be exposed. All foolishness will be dealt with and all injustices will be made right. Well, what's the other? And that has to do with hope. If one one hand you can be calm because you know in the end that those who have been acting foolishly that has been turning the world upside down will, will get their own. But the other is true too. There's hope. And the hope is is this, it's more than for us to just bear with fools. It's more than they will get what's coming to them. That's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is that be patient because God does not, uh, uh patient with fools. Sin, uh, uh, cannot be excused because we're all sinners. You ever heard uh, someone say that? Well, we just need to overlook that because we're all sinners. That's not how the scripture treats fools. You see, God's in a different business. God's in the business of bringing a resurrection, even to fools. Yes, at one time and maybe often, we are all fools. But God's not in the business of reforming you. That would be too small a thing to just make you a better you. To somehow get you into the right conference or the right a self-help program to get you to where you're a better version of you. He's into resurrections. But here's the problem with resurrections, isn't there? We don't like this part, is there has to be a death. You ever thought about that? There's no resurrection without a death. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. In John chapter 12, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, what? Falls to the ground and what? Dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what God's doing in the world. He's taking the ungodly, the fools, because there's really... All are foolish. All were walking in the direction away from God. Not one, according to Romans, was righteous. Everyone had turned his own way. But God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He brought life out of death. And so that's why we can live a quiet and calm life. Because we're trusting the sovereign king who's ruling and bringing about his own justice at his own time. And one of the reasons that it's taken so long, he's waiting for the last person to die to be resurrected spiritually. You see, we've always kind of wondered, because we look at the newspapers and we read the books, trying to figure out when Christ is coming back, when everything is going to be made new, how long is the injustice going to be? And the answer is when the last person who will ever call upon the name of the Lord calls upon the name of the Lord and is saved. And you say, well, when is that? Who knows? But aren't you glad he's that patient? Imagine if he had decided the day before you became a Christian that was the last day on earth. Aren't you glad that he didn't say, you know what, it'd be nice to have them, but I'm, I'm pretty tired of those people. So let's go in and start anew. Let's go in and make all things new. Let's go in and, and take away all that is old and bad and bring new the day before you heard the gospel. And so when we get very impatient with fools, we need to remember why he's waiting He's waiting to do the last resurrection. He's waiting until the last person that he is calling answers the call. And you and I have no idea, but we are glad it's not today. Because there might be somebody like Connie who had a mail carrier who was willing to share the gospel. Well... Since that was the encouraging part, here's the discouraging part. Three applications for the wise. And it's what he spends most of his time on. He spends very little time talking about fools. He spends most of his time about those who have moved from being a fool into wisdom. Verse 14. A fool multiplies words... Though no man knows what it is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. Verse 20, even in his thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature uh, tell the matter. What is he saying? He's, He's saying you need to be wise in your words. You need to understand your words carry freight. You need to know that words can heal, but words can hurt. They have the power to give life and they have the power to take life. Words do. Whoever came up with the crazy little kid saying, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me, has never been hurt by words. Many times, words do more damage than sticks and stones ever could dream. Notice, the type of words that are used in verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth, what? Win him favor. The problem there is the word that is there for favor is the only Old Testament word for grace. For grace. You see, the words of the wise are grace-filled. The words of the wise is the one who has decided that he's going to fill. His words with grace because he has received grace, because she has been given grace. Favor is the word that we want to have. We want grace. And because we have been given grace, we become instruments of grace. What, what the old divines used to call the means of grace. That as our words go out, they can bring healing to the soul. Because we know it's true that the hurtful words can go out and tear the heart right out of a chest of a human being. Some people are always finding fault. Sometimes that's because that's how they were raised. Sometimes it's the only way they know how to relate to others. But some people find fault in others rather than affirming the good, the beautiful, and the lovely that are in people. And I'm not talking about somebody who is basically optimistic and someone who's basically pessimistic. I'm just saying the way in which we delve out our words, we have the opportunity to give grace because we have been given grace. People of God who are people of grace give grace. And not in the teaspoon level level. ...that we tend to do. You ever, you ever notice the way that God gives us grace... ...versus the way that we give grace out? God decides that we need grace because we're struggling. And we, we're praying and we want, we want encouragement. We want to we find uh, 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 success. And, and, and we want to find victory over something that is just really troubling us. And so what God is, does... ...is He rents the largest dump truck in the world... And he brings it and he backs it up to you. And then he pulls the lever. And he says, do you need this much? Well, let me give you some more. And then you've got the whole truckload of grace. But when it's our turn... To give grace to some, somebody. Somebody's offended us. Somebody has said something and it's been hurtful to us. Someone has done something has been hurtful to us. And so we go out into the, into the cabinet and we grab the real teaspoon. Not the teaspoons that you can get at your local department store. But the ones that you get for fine china that is so small. I thought about bringing them to you. I've got about six of them. They're so small. Who can put anything on them? They're meant for stirring in the cup. That's our, that's our version of giving grace. Yeah, you offended me. I'm going to give you some grace, but here it is. No more. And then maybe if they somehow grovel enough or they've paid enough penance, you might reach back in there and get them another teaspoonful. You see, that's not the way it was meant to be. Not for the wise. That dump truck, we're supposed to load it back up with grace and then back it up to the people who've offended us the most and pull the lever and give them way more. That's the way living a calm and quiet life turn offenses. It's not just you sitting in a corner and letting somebody step on you. It's giving them grace when they don't deserve it because that is definition of grace. You say, "That's, that's impossible to be like that. Well, that's what God has done for you. The second piece of uh, of application that he gives us is in verses 16 and 17. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. If the first piece of advice has to do with our, our words, the second one is with our leadership. That our leadership is supposed to be affected by wisdom. Of an upside down set of values that the kingdom has. Not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. There's this great story in history where Charles XII, he was the king, the new king of Sweden. He was a teenager when he became king. And he was uh, young and immature and impulsive. Those are not great qualities of a king. He and his friend would often ride their horses through the palaces. And shoot off their guns. Doing great damage. And so the preachers got tired of it in Stockholm. And so they all decided on a given Sunday. They would all preach on Ecclesiastes 10.16. To remind the king. It's not good to have a young king who's immature. Leadership. This is why it's upside down. Is about service. It's not so much about you following the leader. It's about the leader serving you. That's why it's upside down. And you say, well, where do you get that? The king of kings took on the form of a servant. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark ten forty five. It's putting others ahead of yourself. Every king in the world, every ruler in the world wants him to be first and everybody else behind. But in this case, it is the king that always puts everybody else because he knows that he has to give an account. All leaders have to give an account to the true king. That's wisdom. The last one has to do with our, our work effort. Though sloth, this is verse 18... The roof sinks in. That is, he didn't fix it. And through indolence, the house leaks. That is, uh, someone who is ignoring the repairs. Hard work somehow has gotten to be a dirty word in our culture. What is truly a tragedy is not hard work, but a wasted life. What are you giving your life for? I love where we live. Money is is not the currency of our community, although it is wealthy. The currency of our community has to do with position to power, to to make an influence, to make a difference. We go to church with people who have not only uh, uh, been uh, top guns in the Navy, but have trained people to be top guns in the Navy. We have people in our, our church who have sat and kept America safe. And we all know people who did so at the cost of their own life. Our congregation is filled with people who got into military and government service to save the world. Most people will go to church with bankers and lawyers and doctors and Indian chiefs. We get to go with the people who have been moved to save the world. It's a unique place to live, Annapolis. The preacher has said that all of those things, including our desire to save the world, is meaningless. It's vapor. It's chasing after the wind. If they are our end if that's what we're living for rather than for him, if we are pursuing those things rather than pursuing God and his kingdom, everything else is vapor. This is what he said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. Then all the pleasures of life, Will become sweet appetizers when we put him first. When we live before the face of God, when we are quorum deo, when the beatific vision is our vision, they are just our appetizers to be enjoyed. That's what he says. Bread is made for laughter, verse 19, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. What is he saying? These are good things. Enjoy them but enjoy them like you're eating an appetizer, not the main course. Their purpose is to make you long for what is to come, to awaken our hunger for Jesus. Can you imagine that? Every time you sit down and you have those four pieces of shrimp, they make you long for something more. That's what money and prestige and position and trying to save the world are supposed to do. They're good things. We're to enjoy them. We're to find great satisfaction in them, but they are not our ultimate. For me, there is nothing greater than having a few friends for a long meal. Long meal for me is two or three hours. And you think, who has that much to say? But that's the beauty. Nobody's in a rush. In our culture where everybody is eating to go to the next thing, the one thing that I love to do is to not go to the next thing and let that be the next thing. But even that is just an appetizer because we're all going to a banquet. We're all going to the feast of the lamb. There's already a seat that has been set aside with your name on it for you to enjoy. And then everything else, is just an appetizer for that meal. And that's why we're gathering in worship. Worship is a taste of what heaven will be. And it's an appetizer. I thank you for for coming. You don't have to come on Sunday mornings here. There are so many opportunities. But thank you for coming and listening. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for this beautiful body of people, both at this service, the last service, and the people who are part of our church that weren't here today. I pray that we grow in grace because you have heaped grace on us and you're giving us grace every day to sustain us. How can we ration grace out to others, particularly to those who act so foolish and have done foolish things? And are directionally impaired because they're walking away. I pray, Father, you send your spirit. And that you make fools into the wise. And then allow our words to be gracious. In Jesus' name. Amen.